I get the uh, pleasure of introducing our speaker today. His name's Bob Schwan. If you don't know Bob, he, uh, he sits on our church council and um, does a lot of teaching around here when, in Brian's absence. And then, then uh, his real job is leading Campus Crusade up at MSU. So he's got a really cool message on dating and what God says about dating and relationships. So would you help me welcome Bob to the stage, please? Thanks, so. Awesome. Very, very excited to be with you this morning. Um, as Brandon mentioned, we're kicking off a new series over the next four weeks around here at Journey that we're calling Broken, the truth about relationships, sex, and intimacy. And if we just stepped back for a minute, we would probably come to the conclusion that much of life is about relationships. In fact, most of life is about relationships. And if we were to think about what's going to measure our success in this life, it's primarily going to be measured by our success in relationships. And in this life, we've got so many relationships that we're juggling and giving attention to. We've got our our relationship with God, our relationship with our family, maybe a relationship with a spouse, friends, co-workers. And if we thought about some of the things in our life that have given us the greatest joy My guess would be that some of the greatest joys that you've experienced in life have come from significant relationships in your life. But on the flip side of that same coin, if you were to talk about what has given you some of the biggest and most deep pain in your life, you would probably point to some of those same relationships. And this is the problem that we face. And this is why our series is called Broken. We are trying to manage this series of relationships in our life in a broken world as broken people. And what we want to do in this series is begin to think about what is God's perspective on the significant relationships in my life? From dating relationships, sex, intimacy and marriage, what does God have to say about these things? What does God think about relationships? What does God want for me and my relationships? And what does the Bible teach about these things? Our hope is that this series would give us some practical teaching and some handles that will help us navigate all the different relationships that we have in our life. And today we're going to look at the topic of dating relationships. And now I know that as I even prepared this, I thought, you know, there's a lot of people out in this audience, they're going to be married, and the first thing that's going to go through their head is, you know, this topic doesn't really relate to me. I'm married. Uh, dating is way in the rearview mirror for me in my life. Um, but it was interesting as I began to think about what principles, what biblical principles apply that make us successful in dating. I think there's a broader application to these principles than just specifically the area of dating. I think as marriage, there's things that we could learn as well. But probably the greatest motivation for me, even as a married man, to understand these principles is that I've got a lot of friends that are walking through this area of life. And they're asking a lot of questions about that. And I'm having lots of conversations about it. And I want to be able to walk with them and talk with them intelligently. What is God's perspective? How do I bring God's ideas into this area? But if I were to say what is the most motivating thing for me as a married man and a father to understand these principles and be able to speak intelligently about them and from God's perspective, it's the fact that I've got three young kids at home. 
And when I tuck them in bed at night, the thing that's going through my mind is I want them to be able to walk through this area of their life with confidence and competence, knowing that they understand what does God think about these things. It was interesting, my 11-year-old son was here in the service with me last night, and as we were driving home, I was asking him, I'm like, well, did you learn anything from that? And he said, well, it seemed like you've already told me all that stuff over and over. And so, I, but, I, but I do because I, I want my kids to do well. And if, and if you're married, if you have children, you're going to want your kids to do well in this area too. And the thing is, is that kids are thinking about this way sooner than they probably did, even when I was a kid. It wasn't that long ago I got a Facebook message from a friend of mine, and she was a student that had been involved in our ministry, and uh, she got her degree in education, and while she was stepping into the work world, she was doing some substitute teaching uh, around the Bozeman area here. And she, uh, she just sent me this message telling me about this interaction with a, with a young boy, a first grade boy, that it just, just made her day. She said this, a little six-year-old boy wanted her phone number in her class. And so she thought, you know, in, in this day and age, it's probably very inappropriate for a teacher to give any student their phone number, much less a six-year-old boy. But she was just curious, and she asked him, she said, why do you want my phone number? And he just simply said, well, maybe I want to call you sometime. <laughs> and knowing this gal, she's probably one of the sweetest, most fun, very attractive gal. And I just thought, I know that this little six-year-old just thinks she's great. I know why he probably wants her phone number. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what guts for a six-year-old to try to score the digits of his substitute teacher? I mean, come on. But it was interesting as she finished the note and telling me about how this had made her day. At the very bottom, she said, P.S., this little boy was your son, Josiah. We, we've got some work to do around the Schwann house, obviously. But you know, if you're out there at all, that dating is not just a little kid thing. It's not a teenage thing. It's not just a college thing. Because statistics show that people are waiting longer and longer and longer to marry. More and more people are on the dating scene. And because of the prevalence of divorce in our culture, there's more and more people that find themselves, even in, in midlife, dating again when they never thought that that was going to be a part of their life. There are a lot of people in our culture and a lot of people in our church, frankly, that are asking a lot of questions about this area of dating. Questions like, why am I single? And if I am single, is there something wrong with me? Is there just one person for me? How do I deal with these strong desires that I have in my heart to have a relationship and companionship? What if I miss that one right person for me? Or is there just that one right person? Or how do I know that this one is the one? And how do I develop these relationships in a way that honors God, but also protects me and my life in my heart. There's a lot that's being talked about and even written about on this topic, even from a Christian perspective. Just out of curiosity, I got on Google and I Googled Christian dating books and I got a mere 3.5 million results from that search. And it, 
there's lots to be said on this topic. And the thing is, is that there's lots of different things being said. You can, one of the most popular books related to dating is this book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, gives one perspective. But right next to it on the shelf is this book, I Gave Dating a Chance. <laughs> there's lots of differing perspectives on how to navigate this area of our, of our life as a follower of Christ. And I think the reason that there's so many different perspectives is that the Bible doesn't address this topic directly. You see, the Bible was written primarily at a time where relationships were decided by your parents. Your parents decided who you would marry. There wasn't a a dating process the way we see today. So in a culture of arranged marriages, you wouldn't address that in the Bible. So what we need to do is we need to think about what are some big principles that we need to understand about who God is and how he thinks about relationships that we can bring in to our dating relationships to help us navigate this area with some confidence. And although the Bible doesn't speak really directly to this area, it's not silent about these issues either. In fact, God's desire to see men and women come together an intimate relationship was in his plan from the very beginning. If we start at the very beginning of our Bible, Genesis chapter 2, we see this picture that God has a plan for us, for relationships and for intimacy. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, starts out like this. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God knew that us guys, we would not function well on our own. And guys, we know that too, don't we? I mean, there would just be pizza boxes everywhere. We'd just be sitting around in our underwear watching ESPN all day. This world would not be what it was intended to be. So God's got a plan for man. He wants to bring him a helper. But you've got to read what God does here and at least think to yourself, that's really interesting, if not even a little bit odd. The problem is, is that Adam needs a helper. And this is what God does. Verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God tells you that he's going to provide you a helper. And then you spend the, however long it took seeing animals paraded in front of you. Now I'm thinking if you're out there and you think your eHarmony matches are not helpful to you, <laughs> imagine what was going through Adam's mind. A helper, all these animals, are you, are you kidding me, God? I mean, I, I realize that I'm lonely, but, but you know, I'm not hippopotamus lonely. You know, this, this just doesn't work for me. But God comes through. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. God took from his side and made a partner for him to be by his side a companion for life. And man, this is his response. The man said, now that's what I'm talking about right there. Loose translation. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We see where this begins. Verse 18, we see man's alone in need of a partner. And ultimately, just a few verses later, we see the picture, the ultimate vision that God has for man and woman, a husband and wife, naked and unashamed. That's kind of our vision when we're thinking about getting married as well. But we've got to be honest. If we look at the the area that God describes that in between, it's not a real roadmap for us, what he gave us there in Genesis chapter 2, is it? It doesn't tell you what to do Monday morning in this area of your life to navigate this well. And here's the problem. This world that God describes right here in Genesis chapter 2, this world doesn't exist. This world no longer exists. Because if you know your Bible, if I were to just continue reading just a little bit after Genesis chapter 2, moving on into Genesis chapter 3, you know what happens. This new couple make a decision that, God, we appreciate your instructions. Thanks for the advice. But we're going to do things our way. And they turn their back on God and walk away from him. And as a result of that, a relationship with God is broken. Their relationship with each other is broken. And ultimately, the whole world becomes broken as a result of that. Now that's the world that we live in now. Broken people in a broken world. So that's what we need to think about and navigate in. But what we want to talk about in this series is how do we redeem what's been lost? We know what God's vision was in the beginning. How do we do this in the context of a broken world as broken people? And what we want to do today is we want to think about principles that we can bring into our dating relationships that will help us walk through this with God's perspective. And the way we're going to unpack this is I want us to look at three what I would call like overarching principles and ideas that we need to have square in our mind if we're going to have confidence in dating relationships or in relationships that are moving toward marriage. And then we're going to look at six specific questions that I think we need to ask as we consider relationships that we're stepping into and potential marriage relationships. The first principle is this. It's don't wait to live. Learn to really live now. Don't wait to live. Learn to really live now. Oftentimes what I see happens in our lives is that we buy into this lie that there's something in my future, some event, some person, that when I I just get there, that's when life is going to begin. That's when my soul is going to be filled up. That's when my problems are going to be solved. And the problem is, is that that's a lie. That's a myth. You know, it can be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be a house, a car. Anything in the future that we believe is going to bring life to us, it's just, it's just fleeting. We need to live life now. Don't wish our life away, assuming that something in the future is going to bring us happiness. If I just find Mr. Right, Mrs. Right. Don't believe the lie that relationships will fill the emptiness and the loneliness that you're feeling in your heart for the long term. It's just not going to happen. Don't believe that a relationship can fix all your problems and meet your deepest needs. 
And don't believe that a relationship can help you overcome the struggles in your life. That's just not how it works. You will be the same person with the same problems, whether you're in a relationship or not. And if you're a single people, people person, if you're a single person, I want you to just think for a second and maybe just step back and ask yourself this question. Are married people really happier than single people? You know, if this is the thing that I'm looking to in the future that's gonna bring life, I need to ask myself, is that true? Are married people happier than single people? I think if we just looked just solely at the divorce rates in our country, which hovers right around 50%, and that's for people inside the church and outside the church, the statistics are about the same. Just based on that, do we really think that married people are happier? And of those 50% of marriages that actually make it, how many of those are thriving type marriages that are really life-giving to each other? I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm sure it's just a piece of it. And just based on that alone, I think we can look and say, marriage is not the solution to my problems. Relationships is not the solution to my problem. A friend of mine told me this week that her mom used to always say, I would rather be alone than want to be alone. And I've seen that with so many friends. And I mean, if we had the time, I could parade friends up here that would come up here and share their story with you and say, don't push yourself into a relationship. Don't think that that's gonna make your life better. I've, because I pushed into a relationship, I'm in an unhealthy relationship and a bad marriage. It is not worth it. We need to live life now. Don't think that something in the future is gonna bring life to us. And this whole principle is really centers on one word, and I think that word is contentment. Are we willing to be content with where God has us, wherever we are? The Apostle Paul talked about this topic in Philippians chapter four. This is what he said. He said, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, Paul, when he's talking here, he's talking about primarily the the idea of, of finances and being content with where he's at in terms of having his needs met financially. But the principle applies across the spectrum of our life and everything. Are we content with what God has for us. Because in my mind, contentment is really a faith issue. How, what do we think about God? How do we believe about him? Because I think contentment says, God, I know who you are. I know what you think about me. I know that you want what's best for me. So in light of that, God, whatever you choose to provide for me in this moment, I'm gonna believe that is all I need. And that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about contentment. Wherever you're at in your relationship life, Paul is saying, be content. Whatever God has provided for you, be content. That's all you need right now. And I love how he calls it a secret as well. He said, I've learned the secret. Because what does a secret imply? A secret implies that it's something that he knows, but that not a lot of other people know it. And I think that's true in our world as well. This idea of contentment is not something that's widespread. 
we often buy into this lie that there's something else in this life that when I get that, that's gonna make life happen. And it's just not true. Don't live your life in some kind of a holding pattern assuming that something out there is gonna make life happen. Learn to really live now. The second principle is this. It's simply grow. Focus your life goals on growing as a person. Personally, emotionally, and spiritually. Focus your life there. And here's the practical thing that I think is very, very helpful to do. And especially if you're a single person here today, I want you to begin to think about what is the type of person that I would want to marry? What would be true of the person that I would want to walk through life with, spend the rest of my life with? What are some characteristics that matter to me? And actually get out a pen, get out a piece of paper and begin to write those things down and make this list. Maybe your list would say something like, hungry for God. I want someone that pursues God above everything else in their life. I want someone who's emotionally healthy. I want someone who's willing to forgive and willing to admit when they're wrong. I want someone who serves other people as a lifestyle. I want someone who has the ability to have deep relationships with their friends. They're not surfacy kind of people. I want someone who's intelligent, loves to learn, try new things. Someone who has a good work ethic, who keeps their word even in the small things. Someone who's fun, someone who's athletic. You know, you make your list, personalize it to you. What is it that I'm looking for in someone that I would want to spend the rest of my life with? And now the world tells us what you do with that list is you hold that list up and you compare it with all the potential people in your life. You look at this list and you look at them and you think, ah, not really. And well, you know, if you kind of squint, maybe it kind of looks like that a little bit. But they say, use this list to help you find. And they just go out there and hold this list up to as many people as you can. Work on finding the right person and asking God, God, would you please help me find the right person? I think I want you to do something very different with this list. I want you to take that list. I want you to put it somewhere where you see it all the time. And I want you to get down on your knees and I want you to say, God, would you make me that kind of person? Not God, would you find me that kind of person? But God, would you make me into that kind of person? Because this is, this is worth the price of admission right here. If you will just apply this, it will change your life in relationships. To find the right person, you need to be the right person. To find the right person, you need to be the right person. So often we think that the hard work in relationships is in the finding, the searching, the looking. But that's not where the hard work in relationships is. The hard work is in becoming, becoming the right person. Because you know what I know about spiritually healthy people? Those kind of people, they're attracted to other spiritually healthy people. And you know what I know about emotionally healthy people? Those kind of people are attracted to other emotionally healthy people. People that have strong character are attracted to other people that have strong character. You've probably even seen this played out maybe in, in a negative way in your life or in other people's lives and relationships. You see someone who's just incredibly insecure and they just seem to attract over and over and over the same kind of insecure 
person to their life. Or maybe on the flip side, they attract someone who's incredibly dominating, who takes advantage of their insecurity. But in the end, they consistently, over and over, they end up in these toxic relationships. The issue is begin to think about, how do I grow as a person? How do I get my life more around the things of God, become more emotionally healthy? Seek to become the person that you want to find. The third principle and the last principle that we're going to look at is a question that you must answer. First you've got to ask it, but then you've got to answer it in life. And the question is simply this, who completes you? Who completes you? How you answer that question is going to determine in large part your success in relationship. Who's going to complete you, make you whole as a person, bring life to you? There's lots of thoughts on this, and I want to show you oftentimes how our world, and maybe even Hollywood, answers this question. We live in a cynical world, a cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. I love you. You complete me. I'm not just had shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. Cheeseballed Jerry Maguire. But don't you just love the response of those women? You complete me. Oh, God, that's so beautiful. That right there is an absolute lie. That's a lie. And if you think and if you believe that there's another person walking on this planet that is going to be able to complete you, to make you whole, bring meaning and significance to your life, to give you a sense of worth, to give you a sense of value, you are not going to do well in relationships. Here's a paradox I want you to think about. Only when you quit trying to be completed by an earthly lover will you be free to be loved by an earthly lover. Let me say that again. I want it to sink in. Only when you quit trying to be completed by an earthly lover will you be free to be loved by an earthly lover. Some of my most difficult and trying times in relationships is when I assume that there's a person out there that is going to be able to meet my deepest needs. You know, if I'm with them, that will make me feel significant. If I'm around them, that will meet my deepest needs. That will make me feel valuable as a person. When we buy into that, it makes us unhealthy in relationships. God and God alone was made to be at the center of our lives. He is the only one who has the power to complete us. And when we look to people to try to do that in our lives, 
we end up in a place where we end up doing so many things that are even damaging to our relationships. We get in these over-dependent type of relationships. And maybe you've even experienced that yourself or seen it in the lives of others where someone puts their whole life, wraps their whole life around a person. Everything is about them and they just smother that person. It's unhealthy on both sides. The person that's made their life about this person is unhealthy. And then the person that's being smothered, it's just, ah, give me some space. Get away. I can't deal with the the clinginess. People were not made to be at the center of our world. God is the only thing that has been made to be, God is meant to be at the center of our world. I think about my relationship with my wife uh, back when we were dating in college. And there was a, a season of our time, a time in our dating life when we broke up and kind of went our separate ways. And those of you that know both of us are probably thinking, why didn't that woman just get out while she had the chance? Um, sometimes I wonder that too, but she can't, got her back. But I think about what her life was like when we broke up. And you know what her life was like? It was just fine. She went on with like, I know that's not a shock, but she was just fine. You know, there, were, there was probably a little heartache for both of us, but her life went on perfectly fine. But you know why? It was because Bob was not at the center of her world. God was at the center of the world. He's the one who completed her, who gave her meaning in life, who gave her a sense of value, not me. And when I looked at that, that was one of the most attractive things I had ever seen in another person. Someone who was unwilling to put me at the center of their life because God mattered to them more. We need to ask and answer the question, who completes us? And the answer is God and God alone. Because it's only the gospel, it's only in the power of the gospel that we have any hope of being completed. It's only the love of Christ that's big enough and powerful enough to meet our deepest needs. Because it's in the gospel that God looks at every one of us and he says, you are valuable to me. Regardless of any, what anyone else thinks about you, says about you, feels about you, you are valuable to me. In fact, you are so valuable to me that I'm gonna send my son, my one and only son, to die for you. That's how valuable you are to me. And Christ would look every one of us in the eyes today and say, I would rather die than spend eternity apart from you. The gospel is the only hope that we have of being completed. And now I want us to turn a little bit to the kind of the practical side and begin to think about how do I make decisions based on relationships that are in front of me in life? How do I, what questions do I need to ask about potential people that I'm thinking about dating or thinking about marrying? The first question is simply this. Is this person a committed Christ follower? Now I'm imagining today that if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, that what I just said right there could quite possibly be offensive to you. That you would say, how judgmental, how narrow. Why, why, why would you not want someone to date me? Let me just tell you what I don't try to imply by what I just said. I don't want to say that I think that people that follow Christ are better people or more valuable to God than people who don't follow Christ. And I'm not saying that people that don't follow Christ are even less emotionally healthy than those who follow Christ. But 
By definition, someone who follows Christ is someone who has pledged their allegiance to him. We use the term boss around here. We have made Christ the master of our life. He calls the shots in our life. We follow him above everything else. And it's impossible for us to follow Christ in the way God would want if the most significant relationship in our life doesn't share that same master. It's not a value issue. It's an allegiance issue. And Paul explains this in a, in a command that he gives in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And I like that, I like that imagery that he uses, this idea of a yoke. And now if you, if you try to imagine, think about a, what a yoke was used for in, in a farming agriculture society. They've got this, these two things that would go around the neck of two oxen and then a bar that would go across the top of the two that would tie them together. And the purpose of this yoke was to tie them together and get these people, or not people, but oxen, working together. They've got one master that's talking to both of them and they're working together. Can you imagine how frustrating it would be for one or both of those oxen if there were two masters behind them one talking to this oxen, telling it what to do, and the other talking to this oxen and telling it what to do, it would be so frustrating. They couldn't go in the, the direction of either one. That's why God is saying, don't yoke yourself to someone who doesn't share the same master as you. It's not that God doesn't value that person, but God's not the master of that person. Yoke yourself to someone who shares the same allegiance that you do. And our only allegiance is to Christ. And so we need to tie ourselves in relationships to people who share that same desire to follow him. The second question is, could this person be my best friend? And to unpack this a little bit, I want us to think a little bit about the, the different words that the Bible uses to translate the word love. In English, we just use one word love to cover the whole spectrum. But in the Bible, you, they use different words for love. One of those words is eros, which is kind of the romantic kind of love. It's where we get the word erotic from. It's the romance kind of love. A second kind of love is phileo, which is friendship or companionship kind of love. Someone that's walking along beside me as a buddy. And the third kind of love is agape, which is God's kind of love. An unconditional love that's based on a commitment to the other person. Now as we think about these kinds of love, um, what I'm talking about when I say, could this person be my best friend? I'm thinking that's our lead foot in relationship is asking, is the friendship kind of love there? But what I see so often in our culture is that's not how we start most relationships. We start with the eros kind of love. We start with romance, attraction. You know, we walk into a place where we meet someone and we're asking, you know, do I, is this person hot? Do I, when I'm around them, does it just make my heart go like that? Those are the kinds of cues that we're looking for in life to start relationships sometimes. But what God would want us to do is say, could this person be my best friend? Is there that friendship, companionship kind of love in our life? Because when we start with the eros kind of love, this is what I see happens so often in our culture. Because we don't oftentimes even put a lot of boundaries around our physical relationships with people. We step into these romantic relationships and, and relatively soon, 
These relationships are emotionally charged and physically charged in a way that when we finally get around to asking ourselves, do I really like this person? Could they be a companion for me for the rest of my life? Could they be my best friend? Our mind is so muddled and our emotions are so cluttered that it's difficult to make a clear decision. That's why it's helpful to start with the friendship kind of love, not the romance kind of love. Oftentimes I'll be sitting down with a student because I work with college students and they'll just be bemoaning the fact like, God, it just seems like there's nobody out there for me. And so I'll think about their sphere of of friends and people and and I'll throw out a name to them. Well, what about so-and-so? They just seem like a great person. I can't tell you how many times the people look back at me and they have this kind of like weird look on their face like, well, they're like my best friend. I'm just like, oh, well, hey, I'm sorry, you know. Obviously, they would be disqualified then now that I know that they're your friend. But I think it's, it's just indicator that we're so skewed on this. Everything starts with romance and attraction, and friendship is secondary. But here's also the problem, I think, of reversing that order and starting with romantic kind of love. When you get in these relationships that become emotionally charged and physically charged, you end up with a relationship that, even biblically speaking, looks more like a marriage than a friendship. And what happens when this kind of a relationship breaks up? You know, in our mind, it's, it's just a breakup. But because we're so emotionally involved and physically involved, it tears our hearts apart when we break up. It actually looks more like a divorce than a breakup because of how we've handled our relationship in the beginning. And when we date in this way, it's not really preparing us for marriage. I think it's actually preparing us for divorce because we're experiencing the gut-wrenching pain of having those kind of relationships torn apart. We need to ask ourselves the question going in, could this person be my best friend? The third question that we need to ask is, can this person make and keep a commitment? When I think about them and I look at the landscape of their life, is there a track record of making and keeping commitments? Do they keep their word even in the small things? Are they trustworthy? Have I ever experienced deceit with them? Maybe not even just in in my interaction with them, but have I experienced deceitfulness in them and their relationships with others in any way? Is there a history in their life of following through? And I need to say that if, if you're in a relationship and you're not certain about these things in your life, you have got to start stepping on the brakes in that relationship. That is a major red flag. And this is why it's so important. The essence of marriage, and if you're in a dating relationship, you've got to be thinking that this is heading toward marriage, or why would, you, why would you even be doing it? The essence of marriage is a commitment. It's a covenant that we make before God that says that I am going to be here till God takes one of us off the planet. I am making a commitment to you. So if you look at their life and they can't make commitments, even in the small things in life, don't give them a chance to make the biggest commitment possible that puts your life and your heart in their hands. It's just not worth it. You've got to ask yourself, are they able to make and keep commitments? The fourth question is, does this relationship change me for the better? Hebrews 10, 24 says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. When you look at your relationship, and when you think about your relationship, 
does it spur you on to grow in your relationship with Christ? Or does, or does the relationship tend to drag you down? Do you feel like a relationship calls you to be more like Christ? Or does relationship pressure you to be more like the world? Ask the question, do I like who I am when I'm with this person? Do I like the things that come out of me when, when I'm with this person? Does this person bring out the best in me? When I think about my relationship with my wife, I've always told her that she's my greatest encourager in life. She's my biggest cheerleader, my biggest fan. But one thing that's also true about her is that she is not impressed with me whatsoever. She is absolutely willing to challenge me, to sharpen me, to speak the truth and love to me. When I'm with her, she helps me become more like Christ. When I'm not acting in ways that Christ would act as a husband, as a father, as a friend, she's the first one who in a loving, respectful way is willing to point that out to me and to model it in our home. She makes me better. We need to look for relationships that help us grow, that make us better as a person. Now, I, I wanna say too that no relationship is perfect, but on balance, does this person help me become more like Christ? Does this relationship change me for the better? The fifth question that we need to ask is, are we heading in the very same direction in life? And there's oftentimes, again, because I work with college students, that they're at that time in their life when uh, they're beginning to think about marriage. And oftentimes I'll sit down with a guy and he'll just say, how do I know if this is the one? You know, I, I have great thoughts about her. I enjoy our relationship. How do I know if this is the one? One of the very first questions I'll ask him is, do you know where you're going in life? And is she going in the same direction as you? Because if you don't know where you're going in life, not every detail, but if, if you don't have a big, the big picture vision for what God is calling you into, you're probably not ready to step into a marriage relationship. You need to know where you're going because you need to know that you're both going in the same direction. And people have asked me then, well, well, how do you know or how do you find out if someone's heading in the same direction as you? And I heard this advice and it's always stuck with me. This is what a person does. First and foremost, we fix our eyes on Christ. He's the North Star of our life. We follow him above everything else. And so as we're walking through life, we fix our eyes on him and we listen to his voice. And whatever he calls us to do, we don't just walk there, we run. And we run toward Christ in the things he is asking us to do. And as we're running toward Christ with our eyes fixed on him, every once in a while, we kind of peek to the side a little bit, to the left and to the right, and see if there's anybody running alongside with you. And say, how you doing over there? <laughs> Run hard after Christ and then ask yourself, is there anybody running with me? And if there are people that are heading in the same direction as you, those are your prime candidates for a relationship. The last question that we need to ask is simply this. Is there a growing affection, attraction, and love? Attraction and chemistry, I want to say those things are important. But they're not the way, way we start. We start with friendship 
and we move to affection, attraction, and love. And we ask ourselves, is that growing in my relationship with them? And if it is, that's a prime candidate for a relationship. I want you to just take some time now and set your things aside and I want you to create a little space for you and God. And I'd love for you to just step into a time with him and ask him, God, is there anything that I heard today that you would want me to apply to my life? Is there anything, God, that you would be asking me to do? just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a few more moments. just have a couple of other thoughts I want to share with you. The truth is that relationships in this world, they are broken. And the most important relationship for any of us that walks the planet is our relationship with God. But because every one of us in our own way have chosen to go our own way, our relationship with God has been broken. I don't know where you are at today and your desire to have that relationship with God restored, but I do know that God has reached out to you and he's made a way possible to restore that relationship. I know that he loves you, that he values you, and he wants you to know him. Maybe today it's become clear to you for the very first time that God is real, that he's personal, and that he wants to have a relationship with you that's gonna last forever. You realize that God has offered you a great gift of completeness and forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross for your sins. If you're here today and you want to take that gift and begin that restored relationship that God is offering to you, I want to help you do that. You can do that by expressing these things to God in your heart. God, I believe with everything in me that you are real, that you love me, and that you wanna have a personal relationship with me that will last forever. But God, I admit today that I have sinned, and as a result, I've been going my own separate way, away from a life connected to you. God, I need your gift of forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son, your only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in my place, to pay the penalty for my sin, and to make a way for me to have that restored relationship with you. Jesus, I ask you today to come into my life, to clean me up from the inside out and give me a fresh start. Starting today, God, I make you the boss of my life. If you took that step toward God today, I want you to know that we believe you've made the most important decision that you're ever gonna make. It's so important that we don't wanna let this moment pass without giving you an opportunity to let at least one other person know that you've made that decision. Without anybody looking around, and I wanna promise to you that I wouldn't do anything to embarrass you or draw attention to you, but I just wanna ask you to lift up your head and slip up your hand and make eye contact with me. And by that, you'd just be letting me know that you made that decision. You can do that now. Right over there, see it's the best decision you'll ever make. And over there in the middle, Absolutely. Over there in the back. Right over there on the side. Absolutely. The best decision you'll ever make, surrendering your life to Christ. 
there anyone else? I want to make sure I don't miss you. I'm right there. I see you as well. God, we are so thankful that you want to have a relationship with us. There's no relationship that means more. God, thank you too that you care about our relationships on this earth and you want us to walk through those well. You want us to navigate that well, Lord, but we need you at the center of our lives if we're gonna do that. God, help us in this process. God, we surrender our lives to you and we make ourselves wholly available to you. In your son's powerful name we pray, amen.